title of today's message was originally, What's God's Will for Me? I've changed it to Sanctification, the Super Bowl, and God's Will. So I'm just going a couple different directions today, but we're going to start we're going to start with God's will and end with God's will, and then we're going to have some stuff in between. And so a lot of us can ask the question throughout life, what's God's will for me? What's God's will for me in terms of who should I marry? If you're a younger person, where should I live? Um, where should I work? Um, who should I hang out with? Um, these big life decisions, right? W- where should I invest? Where should I spend my time? Where should I put my money? God, what's your will? And sometimes it's a little hazy, right? Have you guys found the verse on um, put your retirement fund in the IRA, uh, th- th- that one over there. Uh, uh, put your money in uh, this investment. Turn to, that, turn to Habakkuk for that. S- some of these things aren't black and white in Scripture. We're actually told in Colossians 1 to pray so that we would be filled with the knowledge of his will. It says the more we seek him, the more we trust in him with all our heart, and not lean on our own understanding, and in all our ways acknowledge him, he'll make our path straight. He'll guide us. He'll direct us. Perhaps some people have asked, is it God's will for me to go to the Super Bowl? Do you know how much a Super Bowl ticket costs? $8,600? Yeah, they say the average is around $6,000 this year if you want to go to the Super Bowl. If you want a really nice seat, $125,000. That's for... Those right there by the field. So I'll be saving up for next year, 125000 okay? <laughs> Crazy. The first, did you know this? The first Super Bowl, 1967, the average ticket cost was $12. So that's 112 today um, adjusted for inflation. So times have changed a little bit. And times haven't only changed with how expensive things are. Leah came home from the store the other day. She goes, do you know how expensive things are? I'm like, yeah, I go to the store too. And my brother texted me. He's like, you know that a medium French fry at McDonald's is $4.75? He's like, I'm not joking. And so, yeah, that's the world we live in. The word will in the New Testament, God's will, the word will is... The Greek word thelema, it can be translated as desire or purpose. So when you're saying, God, what's your will? God, what's your desire? What's your purpose? That word's used 59 times in the New Testament, thelema. 57 of those times it's referring to God's will. Two times it's referring to man's will. And I think both of those times, at least one of them, it's in a negative way. Whether you're 22 or whether you're 102, this is an important question. God, what's your will for my life? What's your purpose? Ephesians 5.17 says, So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. That's pretty clear. Don't be foolish. Understand what God's will is. So if you don't understand what God's will is, then what are you? Okay, we don't want to be that. We want to know God's will. God's will is at the heart of every prayer that we should pray, or at least a prayer that we should pray often. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. What comes next? Thy will be done on earth 
as it is in heaven. That's our prayer, that his will would be done. God, what's your will? If we don't know his will, but we're praying your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's our constant prayer. What's God's will? According to scripture, God's will is to show off his grace, to show off his compassion, to seek and save the lost, to bless and not condemn. That's his will from cover to cover throughout the Bible. That's his revealed will. Isaiah 30, verse 18. Therefore, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. Therefore, he rises to show you compassion. For the Lord is a just God. Blessed are all who wait for him. So God's will is to show grace, compassion, blessing. Remember what Jesus told his disciples right after or right around where he was telling them, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. And then Thomas is like, Lord, show us the Father. And Jesus said in John 14, 9, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is the exegete of the Father. Jesus has revealed the Father to us. What's Jesus' heart throughout the Gospels? That he hasn't come to condemn but to save. That's his heart. Matthew 23, 37. You know this verse. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who stones the prophets and kills those who are sent to her, how often I would have gathered your children. That Greek word there, it's ethaleo, very similar to the one I just men- mentioned, thalema. It's his will. It's the, the word means will. I have willed, I have desired to gather you together as a hen does her chicks under her wings, but you were, ooh, ethaleo. You were not willing. Same word. I was willing. It was my will to gather you together. You were not willing. You were not willing to come to me. Some have said, that's Jesus speaking to the religious leaders in Jerusalem. He's, it's a condemnation on the religious leaders that he's telling them, I wanted to gather your children, but you weren't willing. You got in the way, you religious leaders. Woe to you. And so therefore, destruction is coming. But when you look at John chapter 5, Jesus looks the Jews right in the face and he says, I say these things that you may be saved. John five thirty four, And then he says in verse 40, and you, you are unwilling. Same word, u ethaleo. Same word used in Matthew twenty-three thirty-seven. to will. You were not willing to come to me that you would be saved. My will's for you to be saved. I'm preaching to you so that you would be saved. You are not willing to come to me. They're going against God's will for them. That's the heart of Jesus. That's the heart of the Father. Here's a couple more verses. Ezekiel thirty-three eleven. As surely as I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked should turn from their evil ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why should you die, house of Israel? Do you remember in Romans 10, 21, it's a quotation of Isaiah 65, 2. God says, all the day long, I've stretched out my hands to an obstinate and disobedient people. God's hands are out. 
Come on, Israel, come to me, turn to me. Why will you die? I'm sending you prophets. I'm showing you miracles. I'm sending you manna from heaven. I'm sending you quail. I'm feeding you. I'm, I've done everything. Isaiah chapter 5, he says, I've planted this vineyard. I've done all that I could to save you. I've done all that I could to reach out my hands and to be like a hen and gather her chicks under her wings. You were unwilling. You're an obstinate and disobedient people. Second Peter 3 9, the Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing for any to perish, but to all, for all to come to repentance. Here's one more, Matthew 18. Jesus brings the little children around him. He's blessing them. He says, it's better that a millstone be hung around your neck and you be thrown into the depths of the sea than to cause one of these little children to stumble. He says, these little children have angels in the Father's presence. And then he says in Matthew 18, 14, it's not the will of your Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. It's not his will that any of the little ones perish. It's not his will that any of them go astray. And right before that, he gives the parable of the shepherd who leaves the 99 to seek out that lost sheep. That's the heart of the father, to seek and save the lost. That's why he sent Jesus into the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. God sent his son into the world to be a propitiation for our sins only. Is that First John 2, 2? Not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. That's God's heart. What's our heart? Our heart should be in line with God's heart to get the gospel out to every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. Acts chapter 17, God's heart is that all men everywhere repent. All men everywhere repent and turn to him. And that's our call to all men everywhere as well. Turn to Jesus and live. Find peace, find joy, find eternal blessing only through Jesus Christ and what he's done for you on the cross. His death, his burial, his resurrection. That's the good news. So what's God's will? God's will is to save. God's will is to bless. God's will is to show off his love. His will is to show off his compassion and his kindness. What if people don't turn to him? Well, then his will is to do what? To show them judgment, to show them wrath, to show off his power in the world. We saw that during the Exodus. We saw that with Pharaoh. Pharaoh, you don't want to turn to me? I will harden you. And now it will be my will to show off my power to the world. The bedrock, the foundation of asking the question, what is God's will in this world? What's God's will for me? is for God to glorify him himself. And God glorifies himself by showing off his grace, his mercy, and his kindness through the cross of Jesus Christ. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.2, I've determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That would be a great verse to put on your tombstone when you die. That's what I lived for. I lived to make Jesus Christ known above all else to show off his beauty, his glory, and his saving power. So that's, that's the bedrock, the overall foundation of what it means to be in God's will, to know God's will. But scripture gets more specific for us. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, if you want to turn there with me, 
I'm already there. I got this all set up. First Thessalonians 4, I'll give you. What's God's will for me? What kind of car should I drive? What kind of house should I have? Should I remodel? Should I save up all my money? Should I put my money in stocks? Should I buy lots of gold? How about silver? I was looking that up the other day. Gold's gone up quite a lot. That's not in my notes. I'm just waiting for you to get to 1 Thessalonians 4. <laughs> all right. 1 Thessalonians 4.1. Finally then, brethren... We request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God just as you actually do walk that you may excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the same matter or in this matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. Just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. Consequently, he rejects he who rejects this is not rejecting men, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Paul's saying, these aren't my words. This isn't my opinion. This isn't Timothy's opinion. This isn't anyone who we send to you, any of these apostles or any of these messengers. It's not our words. It's God's word. These Thess Thessalonians were coming out of idolatry, chapter 1 tells us. Paul says, I think it's verse 10, you've, you've left behind your idols for following now Jesus Christ. You now have saving faith in him. You put your old things behind you. So they've left idolatry. They've left immorality. They put their faith in Christ and Paul says, you need to know the better way. You need to know how to live now because your entire lives, you've lived for the lust of men. Verse five, lustful passion. It's as if Paul's trying to make a point here because he uses the word Hagiosmos, sanctification. If you have a NIV, it translates it holy in several of these verses. Verse 3, verse 4, verse 7. This is the will of God, your holiness. That's God's will. God, what's your will for my life? You, you can know without a shadow of a doubt what his will is for your life. It's that you would be holy. And I believe that comes before who you're going to marry, where you're going to work, where you're live any other question that you can have here on earth he wants you to be holy unto him set apart unto him to be holy means to be more and more like jesus it's the track that all of us christians are on the track of sanctification it's a progressive thing philippians 2 work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it's god who's at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure God's in you working out things in your life. Are, are you on board with that? Are you working out your salvation with fear and trembling? Because you can quench the spirit. You can resist the spirit. You can feed the flesh. You can live for yourself in selfish ambition and selfish motives. And you can sear your conscience, as we're told in scripture. Some even shipwrecked their faith. And so Paul says, live 
by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit, Galatians 5, and you will not gratify the desires of your flesh. It's a daily battle. Jesus said, take up your cross daily and follow me. You have to put the flesh to death every day if you are calling yourself a Christian. And what you know, you know what I'm saying is true if you're a Christian. You wake up, you go throughout your day, and you see this battle. You know what God's word says, and you go, man, I want to follow it, but my flesh wants to do this, that, and the other. And sometimes I'm not perfect. Sometimes during worship, my kids are running around, and I have to take them out there, and maybe I got a little more angry than I should have in the lobby over there a little bit ago. Okay, Lord, was that my flesh? I don't know. You know, Lord, I give it to you. Forgive me, Lord. Aren't you that God is a forgiving God, that his mercies are new every morning, that he longs to show off his grace? He's not like, oh, you messed up again. Here you are coming to me. I'm so angry with you. He's like, you're my God. I love you. Thank you for coming back to me. I will forgive you. And now get on with your day and go on with your life and have a clear conscience. Paul says the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Our goal is to walk out of here with a good conscience, a sincere faith, a love for God and the brethren, and live for him. We don't want our consciences bogged down. We don't want to be constantly bearing these burdens. We want to throw them off and give them to the Lord. Every time they come on us, we give them right back to him. As one brother used to tell me, keep short accounts with the Lord and with others. If something comes to your mind, if, if you're at odds with someone, get rid of it. Go to them, go to the Lord, and then go on with your life, seeking him and serving him. So I believe at the heart of asking the question, what's God's will for my life, is I need to know that God wants me to live holy after him. And if I'm pursuing that, as I'm told in Hebrews 12, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification, same word, without which no one will see the Lord. It's a pursuit. Paul tells Timothy, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life. There's a lot of things that we pursue in life. If we're younger, we're, we're pursuing this, that, and the other. We've got the rest of our lives ahead of us. If we're older, we're still pursuing things. It can change in different seasons of our lives. One thing that's always should be a pursuit, that's a non-negotiable, is pursuing holiness. You say, man, Nick, you talk about holiness a lot. You talk about killing sin a lot and crucifying the flesh. Well, I believe the New Testament talks about it a lot, and I think a lot of churches don't talk about it enough. That's my personal conviction and opinion. Because when you have a lot of ministers and teachers, there's a, this lady online, her name's Julie Royce, and she puts out all these articles on people that have fallen into sin all these pastors and so mike bickle he's in the news right now he's he was he's one of the most well-known charismatic teachers in our country if not the world written many books he has ihop not the pancake place but international house of prayer not pancakes and so 24 7 prayer 24 7 worship you can go to kansas city you could probably you could turn on your computer right now and someone's worshiping for the last 25 years, I'm, I think it's been going on. 24-7, worship and prayer. Isn't that a pretty good thing? To pray and seek the Lord? They, they, people are on shifts. From one to three, you go in and you play worship and sing. And then 
Someone else comes in at 3 a.m. I wonder if anyone's ever fallen asleep as they're playing the guitar or praying in there. I'm sure that's happened before. That's a good thing. And so some people have said, yeah, Mike Bickle's off because of this or that and these weird prophecies, but at least he's doing that. Francis Chan was approving of him for many years and saying, Mike Bickle, I love this man. He, he's, a, he's a godly man. He's a faithful man. And the people closest to him that have now been coming out because there's sexual abuse charges against him and more and more of these charges are coming out and he's starting to admit some of it, but he's not saying, I re- he's not saying like David in Psalm 51, like I repent in dust and ashes and like I deserve to die. He's saying, well, I got involved in this over here and I got involved, yeah, me and that girl, yeah, we got involved too and okay, I, I did some things over there I shouldn't have, but I'm good. And people closest to him know a lot of things now of these Jane Doe's that have, come out and are saying more and have confided in them and they're like you need to repent you need to get on your face you've been leading this ministry this church and for years and years and years and we all thought you were the godliest man in the world and he touted himself I am a holy godly man and now the truth is coming out and so when I read these articles and I see how many people are losing their faith or they're they're angry at God or they're confused you know The more you love Jesus, the more you hate sin. The more you hate the sin that put him on the cross, the more you want to be led by the power of the Holy Spirit, the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead. And that, that spirit in you will have some righteous indignation at times, saying, that's wicked. I can't believe a minister of the gospel did that. And then at the same time saying, apart from the grace of God, I can do that as well. Let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. So it's both hands. Some people are just, you know, pointing the finger, oh, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, okay, yeah, you can call that, that out. And we need to call him to repentance, but we also need to guard our own hearts. We also need to watch our own lives. Very, very important. So Paul says in chapter 2 of Second Thessalonians, verse 12, walk in a manner worthy of God. Paul is very concerned with how you walk how you live. Ephesians 5, be careful how you walk, not as an unwise man, but as a wise man, making the most of your time for the days are evil. That comes right before the verse that I just shared, verse 17. Do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. He wants us to be careful. He wants us to be diligent, to pursue him. Christianity is just not mental assent. It's just not saying, well, I believe in Jesus. And I can just go live on like everyone else. It's a total transformation. All these verses keep coming to my mind. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. God wants you to be transformed from the inside out. Just like Jesus died on the cross and rose again, a a resurrection When you come to Christ, that old man is now dead. So Colossians 3, 5 says, put to death the deeds of the body. Some translations say, consider yourself dead to these sins, to these things. If you tell someone you're dead to me, you don't want them to be in your life. As Christians, we don't say that. We're constantly praying. We, We pray reconciliation upon anyone in our lives. We need to have healthy boundaries and so forth. But if you're dead to something, that's not a part of you anymore. Scripture says over and over, be dead to sin. Oh, but Nick, it's still there. I I can feel it. Yeah, that's your flesh. Me too, every day. 
We're called to crucify it. We're called to put it to death. Chapter 4, verse 8, Paul doesn't say, God has given you the carnal spirit. He's given you the lukewarm spirit. No, he's given you the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit living in you, so you're to be holy as he is holy. You're to be guided by the Holy Spirit in you. Led by the Spirit, not quenching the Spirit. God's will is that we don't merely make decisions in our lives and be led by the flesh or be led by our desires or the things that we feel or the emotions that we have. I believe that's what Paul's telling the Thessalonians. That's how you used to live. You had an emotion, you had a feeling, you had a desire. You, you just did it. You, you want to find pleasure in life. So if you feel it, okay, as long as it's not hurting anyone else, that's how our culture phrases it. If it's not hurting any, anyone else, do it. If you feel like this sin or that sin, just do it. And that's what he's contrasting in verses 4 and 5. You need to know how to possess, to possess your own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. You need, NIV says to learn. You need to learn how to control your body. Some commentators say there's an argument that can be used for the word vessel there as your spouse. I think the, and I didn't read a ton on it, but I believe it's actually talking about your body. That each of you know how to control or possess your own body in sanctification and honor. And the same word vessel is used in 2 Timothy 2, where Paul tells Timothy, you need to rid yourselves of these things so you can be a vessel unto the Lord. You need to, you need to get wickedness out of your life so that you're a pure, holy, set-apart person, a tool for the master, a hands, you're a tool in the hands of God. You're a vessel unto the Lord. So 1 Thessalonians 4, 5 says, not in lustful passion. Both believers and non-believers have lustful passions. The thing is, what do you do with them? The word lust, epithumia, means desire, strong feelings, to long for something. The word passion is pathos. It means, again, strong emotions or feelings. King James says, lust of concupiscence. You guys use that word every day? That's a tough one. Concupiscence, I think, is how you say it. Lustful passions. Lustful desires. What do you do with these? I think what Paul is trying to say is you need to learn that this is not God's will. You need to learn that your will, your desires, the way you lived before you became Christians, that's not God's will. God's will is that you put these to death and that you walk in truth, in faith, in holiness. Crucify them. As I mentioned, Colossians 3.5, put them to death. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 5.30, if your hand causes you to stumble, chop it off and throw it from you. It's better to enter heaven maimed than go to hell with all your members. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better to go to heaven blind than go to hell with all your members. Pretty radical. These are Jesus' words. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9.27, I beat down my body, I make it my slave. So after preaching to others, I will not be disqualified. Beat down your body. Beat down your flesh. Your flesh, I was talking to a lady as I was doing a chaplain visit this last week, Christian couple, missionaries. They were actually missionaries in Mexico for 20 years. 
Actually, he worked with John MacArthur for 10 years, led John MacArthur's son to the Lord. Now they're living in Idaho. Their son's a pastor in McCall. Their other son's a worship pastor, and I get to go minister to them every week. And there's a lot more to the story and HIPAA violations and people listening to me right now ready to lock me up. I don't know where that line is drawn. I want to tell you all about them, but I'm told, don't you can't share too much. You're not allowed to. But which, and she might be listening to this message. She, she was asking, where do you pastor and wh- what church? And I'm like, okay, if you listen to the messages and I bring you up, don't report me, okay? But I didn't say that, but she was t- just saying, you know, the flesh, you know, it's, she said, I go to a counselor and she said, it's like a, bo- it's like a beach ball that y- you push down and it, it keeps wanting to come up over the water. And I said, it's like the whack-a-mole. That, that's how I've always thought about it like a Chuck E. Cheese. It's just you hit one and another one's popping up and then you hit that one and another one's popping up and you think you got it figured out and you're just constantly sitting there. And I I think that is a a decent illustration of the Christian life. You're always going to have a mole popping up at some point in your life. The moment you just sit back and go, I got the game figured out. I hit them all. I'm done. No, you haven't. You're about to fall. There's about to be all of them sticking up and now you're going to town again. It's a constant battle, the Christian life of crucifying the flesh, putting the flesh to death, beating your body down and making it your slave, putting to death the deeds of the body, Romans 8, 13. That's sanctification. I'm, I'm unpacking what Paul means, I believe, by sanctification in 1 Thessalonians 4. It's hard work. I've been telling Leah lately, man, it's hard being a Christian. And I kind of say it in jest, like, but I'm like, it's hard being a Christian. It's hard. And she goes like, what do you mean? I'm like, it's just hard. If you're truly fighting the good fight of faith, the word fight is agon. It means to wrestle, to fight, to struggle. Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Scripture tells it plainly as it is. It is a struggle. It is a battle. I was listening to a Christian lady being interviewed this week and she said and I'm going to summarize what she said she said living the sanctified life requires blood sweat and tears it's hard work it may require a thousand death blows a day to your sin in holy obedience to Christ she said the moment sin is in its embryo form the moment I'll add this. The moment you see that whack-a-mole little guy, just he's just barely peeking his head up. She says, put it to death. Don't entertain it. Don't coddle it. Don't pamper it. Don't justify it. Don't even give it a moment before you rid it from your life, before you flee from it, kill it, crucify it, put it to death. She was using these terms. She was passionate as she was speaking about sanctification and holiness. Why was she so passionate why was she using these same words i'm using well one they're in the bible but two she's speaking to she was speaking to 10,000 18 to 25 year olds she's at a conference and she knows the struggle these young people have today they're being told online in movies and by their friends do what you want to do if you have a desire if you have a feeling if you have an emotion if you have an attraction to someone go for it and not only go for it, we're going to celebrate it. And we're going we're gonna to be right there with you, and we're going to be happy for you. 
So when people now have desires, which young people do and old people do, and that's why this is so important, because these desires don't leave you till the day you see Jesus face to face as long as you're in this body, and they take on different forms. They need, be, they need to be told the truth. Don't pursue this. We're not celebrating this. That sin will kill you. And that's what this lady said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Why did she speak so passionately? Her name's Rosaria Butterfield. She was a Ph.D. tenured professor at Ohio State University. She was a feminist. She was a liberal. She was a lesbian focusing on teaching queer theology or queer theory and British literature. Then God showed up. God radically saved her. God set her down this path that she was on and redirected her. She ended up marrying a pastor. Now she goes around preaching the gospel, preaching repentance, preaching how we need to live the sanctified, holy life, and we won't be outdone in hospitality and by loving our neighbor by those in other communities, if that's what you want to call them, because they're very, she said, man, when I was a lesbian, we'd have potlucks and parties and Feast of Charities every night of the week. We'd be together. We'd be loving each other. She goes, these people just cared for me. Then I go to the church and it's like, hey guys, can we get together? Can we break bread? Can we fellowship? And so now what she was preaching before and, and she was, she's taking those things and saying, uh, guys, the scripture teaches hospitality. The scripture teaches to love one another. The scripture teaches to break bread with each other and what was the early church doing in Acts 2.42? They continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, to prayer, and to fellowship. They were together so often, and the text says that they were rejoicing, and they were in fear of God, and they were honoring him, and God was just doing amazing things. And today, it's like, man, we're working 60 hours a week, and we have kids and hobbies, and see you on Sunday for 45 minutes. We got to press in all the more to love the brethren, and that's what she models for us so greatly. So she left her teaching position. She left her former girlfriend. She left her formal lifestyle, her former lifestyle to pursue Jesus, to pursue sanctification, to be more like him. This woman who was once championing all these sins, she was writing the booklets for universities on the approval of sexual sin and how we can better integrate this into our curriculum and into our colleges. She said, I was a champion for liberal, feminist, lesbian, whatever you want to call it. That's what she did. She was like the ringleader. Kind of sounds like the Apostle Paul, huh? Like he was so far this way and now he's so far this way. And it's only, only by God's grace can this happen. So she was once preaching Pursue your lustful passions and I will celebrate it and approve it. And now she's so radically preaching holiness, repentance, sanctification because she saw what it was doing to her and others. She can see it that much more clearly now. She stated, quote, Our call is not to despair, but to hope in Christ and to drive a fresh nail into our choice sin every day. If you listen to her testimony, she says it wasn't easy. It wasn't like, she got saved and then just jumped right out and never had any struggles ever again and was like, oh, great, that's all behind me. No, 
It was a constant battle for her. But she said, this is sanctification. This is what God calls of me. So every day I'm putting that to death and I'm moving forward in Jesus. She said in her autobiography, the secret thoughts of an unlikely convert, quote, repentance requires greater intimacy with God than with our sin. How much greater? About the size of a mustard seed. Repentance requires that we draw near to Jesus no matter what. And sometimes we all have to crawl there on our hands and on our knees. She's saying, yeah, I know I should run to Jesus, but it's not that easy sometimes. So I just fall on my face and I crawl to him. And aren't you thankful that he's the merciful, kind, tender-hearted shepherd that's right there to receive us, right there to heal us, to comfort us, to forgive us. And he says, I can sympathize with you because I was tempted in every way, yet without sin. I know what it is to suffer. I know what it is to have nails driven into my hands and my feet and suffer on the cross. So when you're suffering and you're struggling with sin, Jesus, it says in the book of Hebrews, sympathizes with us in our weakness. He's right there to help us in our times of need. So the more the world preaches the gospel of sin and celebrating it, the more we need to preach the true gospel that Jesus died for sinners, that Jesus saves sinners from their sin, and he gives us the power to conquer it in our lives. He gives us the power to put it to death. The same spirit that rose him from the dead dwells in us. So as I said before, the more we become like Jesus, the more we hate the sin that put him on the cross, and the more that we want to be led by the same spirit that rose him from the grave okay let's switch directions a little bit now that was pretty heavy but very important the first Super Bowl halftime show was guess what a marching band 1967 it wasn't some rock star doing something on stage it was the Arizona marching band and the Grambling State marching band amazing how far we've come in our country how many people watch the super bowl every year over a hundred million it's the most watched event or the most watched show the most watched thing to my research as i looked it up with over a hundred million some say 150 million and i thought about that how do they know how many people are sitting in the house uh, do they just know how many tvs are playing it or how many smartphones have the game on they don't know that there's 100 people or 1,000 people in that room watching. It's an estimate, right? They know. They're watching us. <laughs> they know. They know everything. Leave it to the Marine to tell us. He knows. So we've gone to, from marching bands to s satanic halftime shows. There's enough ammunition for good fight, YouTube, good fight, fight the good fight to produce the Super Bowl and Satan and Beyonce, Sasha, Super Bowl and Satan and all these Super Bowl and Satan. I don't know how many there are. There's so much ammunition that the enemy is like, cool, everyone's watching this. I'm going to get my hand in on this. You, know, it's, you can't even have kids watch a football game anymore. Kids have to turn the, oh, here's another bad commercial. Oh, here's the halftime show. You guys go in the backyard. It just made me think, where has our country fallen from overall? Most of Americans watch this game. How many are disgusted by it? How many are calling it out and saying, you know, this isn't right? 
can we get back to having some marching bands at halftime? Can we just get back to something that's not overtly pushing sexual innuendos and immorality and Satanism? You know, our country was founded by Christians, Christian colonists, with Christian, Judeo-Christian laws, with Christian schools and Christian colleges pumping out Christian ministers. Look at all the Ivy League schools. They, they were founded as Christian institutions. These people weren't perfect. They, weren't, they didn't all have perfect theology, but they were just trying to do God's will. I was looking up a man, John Winthrop. He was the first governor of Massachusetts, the Massachusetts Bay Colony. This is what he said in March 21st, 1630. He said this from England as he was talking to those that would be coming to America with him. He said, quote, as a city upon a hill, the eyes of the people are upon us so that if we shall deal falsely with our God in this work, we have undertaken and so cause him to withdraw his present help from us, we shall be made a story and a byword through the world. He said, we're a city on a hill. People are watching us. We're Christians. We need to be set apart unto God. Essentially, we need to do God's will, and we need to stay faithful to him. I believe he was exhorting these future colonists, like Paul is exhorting us and the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 4. Be separate unto the Lord. I was reminded of a Super Bowl commercial as I was putting my notes together in 2010. You might have remembered it. It was a mother and a son. Some touted it as a, a pro-life commercial. Essentially, it's a 30-second commercial, and the mom says, my baby boy was a miracle. He almost didn't make it into the world, and then pops up, celebrate family, celebrate life. And it was like the son tackles the mom, and she gets up and says something funny. Well, women's groups were marching. Women's groups we're calling out CBS and saying, you cannot air this commercial. You can air Satanism. You can have Beyonce doing all sorts of symbolism with all this disgusting thing. But the moment someone says life or choose life or even hints at talking against a chosen sin, they're going to line the streets and march against you. Well, what's the backstory of this commercial? The mom contracted amoebic dysentery. She fell into a coma. She was a missionary in the Philippines. While recovering in the hospital, she discovered she was pregnant. The medication used to treat her dysentery, if that's how you say it, caused a placental abruption. Doctors expected a stillbirth. They recommended an abortion. This woman nevertheless gave birth to Tim Tebow. August 14th, 1987. Pretty cool story. Tim Tebow's not perfect. You might say, well, I didn't like him as a quarterback, or I didn't like this thing he said. Nevertheless, this is an amazing story, and I believe God's used him in amazing ways. And I think it's pretty cool because he was the sickly little child, a couple pounds when he was born. I don't know the exact weight. Here he grows up to be six foot three, 250 pounds, huge dude. That's how God works, right? You want to you want to abort this child? You want to you want to think that he's nothing? I'm going to raise him up and I'm going to use him to point people to Christ. So though these women's groups were marching against it and petitioning to withdraw the commercial it aired during su Super Bowl 44. And then I I want to I want to finish this message 
by giving you the rest of the story because I think it gets a little better. In an article titled Super Bowl Blessing, we're told that there was a young girl, Susan Wood, who went to a Super Bowl party on February 7th, 2010, because she couldn't bear to be alone. She was panicked. She was worried. She was indecisive. She was pregnant. And her boyfriend told her abortion was the only option. Susan, though, never watched football. She never watched college football. She couldn't name a college football player. It just so happens, several weeks before that Super Bowl, ESPN popped up in her house, and she was doing the laundry, and it was a documentary on Tim Tebow. So she watched the documentary and thought nothing of it. Well, here she is a couple weeks later, sitting at this Super Bowl party with some friends, indecisive, depressed, contemplating abortion, and this commercial of Tim Tebow and his mom pops up. She's watching it. She says, quote, I wanted to be critical. I wanted to bash this horrible anti-choice commercial, but as we watched, everyone agreed that it was a positive commercial with an encouraging message, not one of judgment and condemnation. Susan couldn't get the commercial out of her mind. She went home, searched the web, found the ad and the article and the interview linked to Tebow's parents. She read the whole backstory on Tebow's mom wanting to do God's will and to keep the baby despite the doctor's advice. So what did Susan do? She gave birth to her baby. The baby's father never came around. He raged, he threatened, he simply checked out. She said, that's okay. And Avita Grace was born into this world because two Christians did a commercial during the Super Bowl and were willing to show what God has done in their lives. What's the meaning of today's message? Do God's will in your life, right where he has you. You might not get to be a governor of a state. You might not get to talk to 10,000 college students. You might not get to ever do a commercial or step foot on a football field or have a huge platform, but God is using you right now, today, where you're at. You have people in your church that need you to live out God's will in your life, people in your house, people at your job, people every day that you come in contact with because you're a city on a hill. You cannot be hidden if you are following Christ. You need to let your light shine before men in such a way that they see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. You need to live for him. You need to be a tool in his hand. You need to be a vessel for useful use to God, to bring him honor, to bring him glory, to bring him praise. So in closing, we want to be able to say, in my house, Lord, be glorified. In my church, Lord, be glorified. At my job, Lord, be glorified. In my heart, Lord, be glorified. For from him and through him and to him are all things, and to him be the glory forever. Amen.